Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and today we take a look at a few fascinating and significant events related to Texas history that have occurred over the years in the month of October. A little bit late. First off, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, governor of Nuevo Galicia, set out under the orders of Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza to find the fabled seven cities of Cibola in 1540. Now, he didn't find any gold, but continued traveling under hopes to find riches in a place called Quivera. And along his journey, he reached what historians believe to be the Llano Estacado in the modern Texas Panhandle in 1541. What, pray tell, is the Llano Estacado, and what does that name mean? Well, before we continue, here's a brief explanation. The Llano Estacado means Staked Plains, and since the time of Coronado, it has been the name for the Texas and New Mexico Plateau on the southern Great Plains. The Apaches call it home in the 1500s, and a couple of hundred years later, it would become the undisputed domain of the Comanches. And then someday, in the 1800s, the western trail and the Horsehead or Goodnight Loving Trail would skirt its edges. With its low water supply, it had been a barrier to European settlement, not to mention the presence of the Apache and Comanche barrier to settlement. As historian Paul Wellman wrote, the Llano Estacado is marked by a strange abrupt upthrust of flat plains which breaks sharply away from the eastward levels with an escarpment sometimes extremely steep and quite high. It is crisscrossed with canyons and gullies and so dry that early explorers called it the Sahara of America. And the Texas Rural Register and Immigrants Handbook said in 1875 that the Llano Estacado would not, quote, ever be adapted to the wants of man. It was, quote, 
the only uninhabitable portion of Texas. Now, Texas legend Charles Goodnight apparently did not rely on the advice of guidebooks because he proved it to be not only habitable, but profitable when he moved into the Palo Duro Canyon in 1876. And actually, the Llano Estacado had not been true virgin territory. Yes, the Comanche and Kiowa and the Apache before them had mastered it. But the Comancheros and Sobaleros of New Mexico had been familiar with the region for hundreds of years as well. Indian traders, buffalo hunters, sheep herders, and Mexican mustangers were all familiar with the region. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I do that sometimes. Let's get back to the first European expedition to encounter the Llano Estacado way back in 1541. So on October 20th, 1541, in a letter he wrote to the King of Spain, Coronado recorded the first description of the region and the people that lived there at that time. The people he met, called Carechos, are believed to have been Apaches. I'm going to read an excerpt from the letter with his description. Coronado wrote, After nine days' march, I reached some plains so vast that I did not find their limit anywhere that I went although I traveled over them for more than 300 leagues. And I found such a quantity of cows in these, now he's writing about buffaloes, of the kind that I wrote your majesty about, which they have in this country, that it is impossible to number them. For while I was journeying through these plains, until I returned to where I first found them, there was not a day that I lost sight of them. And after 17 days' march, I came to a settlement of Indians, who are called Carechos, who travel around with these cows, who do not plant and who eat the raw flesh and drink the blood of the cows they kill. And they tan the skins of the cows, with which all the people of this country dress themselves here. They have little field tents made of the hides of the cows, tanned and greased, very well made, in which they live while they travel around near the cows moving with these. They have dogs which they load, which carry their tents and poles and belongings. These people have the best figures of any that I have seen in the Indies. They could not give me any account of the country where the guides were taking me. Now these Carechos that Coronado described were the first early pre-horse plains Indians encountered by the Spanish. They were members of the Eastern Apaches, a people that spoke Athapaskan, a language that is associated with the peoples up in British Columbia and Alaska. Now, these people had migrated south from Canada, believed to be along the western flank of the Great Plains, and the Athapaskans that were farthest to the west we know as Navajos. Others went farther south to become the Western Apaches, and others still continued eastward to this area of the Southern Great Plains. It is believed that these Carechos are related to the Plains peoples that are known as the Lipan Apaches. The Comanches would arrive later and compete with them for control of the Plains, but for a time the Apaches were the lords of the Southern Plains. Coronado went on and traveled to Kivara, 
but he did not find piles of gold and treasure. Instead, he found a people, the Wichita, who along with the Comanches and the Apaches play a very important part in our next date of October 7th, 1759. But before we leave Coronado in his failure, we should appreciate the fact that he did leave us valuable descriptions like this of the people and lands living here at that time. And the Apaches and the Wichita he met would be involved in our event over 200 years later. In time, Comanches did come to not dominate the plains and the Apaches changed tactics and sought aid from the Spanish, the people that they had been tormenting for so long. And that leads to our next date, October 7th, 1759, and a battle on the Red River in modern day Montague County. But let's pause here and take a break before we get on to our next adventure that is tied to Coronado's journey of the early 1540s. And thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. Now, when Coronado reached Kansas, he met the Wichita, who, if you listen to some earlier lessons, are linguistically related to the Caddo people that flourished in northern and eastern Texas at the time the Europeans arrived. Like the Caddo, the Wichita were an agricultural people living in amazing grass huts. And you can see examples of their homes if you're ever in the area of Anadarko, Oklahoma, and decide to stop by their Wichita Tribal History Center. They had some amazing replicas of their homes then, and it's fascinating to look at them, and the amount of work that went into these structures had to have been intense and tell them his Texas history lesson sent you if you ever do drop by. So the Comanches arrived and pushed the Apaches southward. And then the Apaches started to exert even more pressure on San Antonio and Mexican settlements. Now, along with the Comanches, the Osage were putting pressure on the Wichita and they pushed the Wichita's down towards the south, towards the Red River and Trinity River Valleys in that region of Texas. The principal band of the Wichita groups moving south was that of the Talvayas. And by the 1750s, the Talvayas had constructed large villages on both sides of the Red River, one on the south bank being known as San Teodoro and the one on the north bank in Oklahoma getting named San Bernardo, but those names wouldn't be associated with them until later in the 1700s. Now, we also have to bring in another group that had something to gain from all of the complexity of the situation and the volatility that was going on, the pesky French that the Spanish were always worried about. Despite Spanish efforts to stop them, the French were very active across the countryside. They were more interested in trapping and trade than ruling and establishing villages, and they were very active with the native peoples of North Texas, especially between the Red and Trinity Rivers. They supplied all kinds of very desirable goods, like guns to the Comanches and Wichita's and etc. 
and realizing the situation, they were able to unify the Comanches with the Wichita's by treaty in the 1740s. And the Tavaya's villages on the Red River then became even more important centers for trade because there was such easy access down the Red River into Louisiana trading posts. As I mentioned, on the Texas side, the village would later be given the name San Teodoro, and the Oklahoma side, the village would be called San Bernardo. As historian Earl Henry Elam wrote in his master's thesis on Anglo-American relations with the Wichita Indians in Texas, 1822-1859, hey, you can go to the Texas Tech website and actually download and read the thesis. He wrote it in the late 60s. The village on the Texas side of the river became a lively, I quote, emporium where Comanches brought Apache slaves, horses, and mules to trade for French packs of powder, balls, knives, and textiles, and for Talvalia-grown maize, melons, pumpkin squash, and tobacco. On friendly terms, arranged by the French, the Comanches, Wichita's, and other friendly groups, like the Caddo, and the Atacapas provided a dangerous front against the Apaches. By the 1750s, the Apaches realized they needed to make a change. On one side, they'd been waging decades of hostility and violent warfare against the Spanish. And then on the other side, they faced an increasingly amount of danger from the Comanches and their allies, the groups of northern nations of peoples that the Spanish called Norteños. They grouped the Comanches in with this too, so that you would see these reports about the Norteños had attacked. And so it's very difficult necessarily knowing who was involved sometimes, unless they specifically named the, the bands that were involved. But this is what they faced. So the Apaches began visiting the San Antonio missions at times as they had in the past, but this time in peace instead of as raiders. And they enticed the Spanish to start a mission presidio settlement on the San Saba River, claiming that they were ready to be friends with the Spanish and accept the Catholic faith. And in 1757, Mission Santa Cruz de San Saba was established on the San Saba River, northwest of San Antonio, near present-day Menard. About a mile away from it, actually. And a presidio, the Presidio San Luis de las Amarillas, was constructed about two to three miles away. Now, the reason they kept the presidio so far away from the mission is the thinking was the presence of the military base would intimidate the Apaches, the Lipan Apaches, and make them more unwilling to visit the mission and come under its influence and guidance. And so the mission itself was not that successful at first and never really was. But the Apaches started to take advantage of the fact that they were now on, quote, friendly terms with the Spanish. And when they would be raiding their Norteño rivals, they started leaving behind articles of Spanish clothing, boots, shoes, different things, making it obvious that they were 
maybe on friendly terms with the Spanish. And the new Spanish, the new Spain officials, inciting with the Apaches, did not realize that they were about to unleash years and years worth of violence and destruction from the Comanches and their allies. So the shift from Spanish and Apache warfare to peace seemed like a possible threat to the Comanches and their Norteño allies, which, as I said, included groups like the Tavalias, who were Wichita's, the Bidets, who were Atacapans, if you remember episodes on them, the Tejas, who were Caddo's, and Texas gets its name from. And the placement of a Mission Presidio complex far into the hill country near present-day Menard seemed kind of like an insult, probably, to them also. The Comanches did not approve of the mission's presence in the territory that they had been fighting the Apaches for control over for several decades. So we get the Mission Presidio complex set up, And for months, rumors of a large Comanche war party coming kept being passed around and signs of increased activity around by Comanches and others kept being sighted and seen. And it made the people living at the mission in the Presidio be very watchful. The Presidio commander repeatedly encouraged the priests who had a small group staying at the mission, I think it was somewhere from 15 to 20 people total at the time. And he kept encouraging them to say, come to the Presidio so I can protect you because they had hundreds of people, up to about 300 people living at the Presidio, I believe, many of them being women and children. And he had a very small force of men to actually serve as protectors. And as a matter of fact, Perea, who was the commander, personally invited the priests on the afternoon of the 15th and encouraged them to join him at the Presidio. Perea did not have enough troops to defend both sides. So he's like, please let me do my job. He had fewer than 100 soldiers, and as I said, and several women and children to protect the Presidio. The father who was in charge of the mission refused, Father Terreros. So on March 16th, 1758, and yes, we're going to get to the October event. This is very important background on it, though. An extremely large party of Comanches and other allied North Texas bands estimated up to 2,000 possibly and then as it included the Talvayas, Tejas, Bidets and others arrived at the mission historian William Edward Dunn wrote this description in an article in Southwestern History Quarterly that he did years ago describing this force from the way it was described by the people that survived this attack said they were arrayed in strange garbs and mounted on gaudily equipped horses. Their faces were painted black and crimson, decorated with the most horrifying and repulsive figures, and many wore the skins of wild beasts, 
with the tails hanging down from their heads. The mere sight of them, we are told, was enough to strike terror to the heart of the bravest soldier. All appear to be armed with guns, sabers, or spears. End quote. Now, first, this scary-looking group, they actually did pretend to act peaceful and requested to be led inside the mission grounds. One of the soldiers there recognized some of the uh, natives that were in the group and said, oh, these people are actually peaceful. It's okay. What a mistake. So they let them in. Uh, the father spoke with the one of the leaders of the group. And next thing you know, everything went wrong. They started looting and pillaging the houses and the belongings of the mission. They killed two priests and eight others that were present. Total of ten dead. Uh, Father Terreros was killed. And the attackers also decapitated Father Santistaban, who was at the altar. Practically everything of the mission was pillaged or destroyed and set fire to. And then after a couple of days of trying to lure the soldiers from the Presidio, the Comanches and their Norteño allies withdrew to the north. All of these events are leading to the event of October 7, 1759. And retaliation was not quick. They had to communicate with the Viceroy in Mexico City, and that was a very slow process. So it was not until January 1759 that a council or junta was held in San Antonio at which a plan for an expedition to punish the Norteños could be made. The Spanish officials definitely believed that they needed to teach the northern tribes a lesson in respect and to vindicate Spanish arms to show that they were not to be messed around with. And so they began to make plans for an expedition against the native peoples of the north. And reading through the details of all the arrangements makes it seem like it's kind of a bureaucratic and financial nightmare to assemble the needed force and supply. Part of the force would be actual soldiers in the new Spanish military. And then others would be militiamen sent by different provinces. And the provinces didn't want to send anybody because they said, we're already fighting our own battles where we are. But I digress. The, the commander of the Presidio, Don Diego Ortiz Perea, he persevered and made it happen eventually. Now, Perea, by most accounts, was a competent and capable commander, having served the crown militarily both in Europe and in New Spain. He'd also served time as governor of the provinces of Sonora and Sinaloa for a total of five years, and he'd gained experience in Indian warfare in campaigns against the Apaches of the Gila country. But despite the delays, Perea felt capable of punishing the Wichitas and Tonkawas and others because his orders stated that he was not supposed to set out for the Comanches, the thought being, well, they live too far away. Let's just focus on the ones where we know the general idea where they live in first. And let's go get them. They weren't really prepared for what they were about to get into. To make matters even worse, 
add insult after insult before they even finished making arrangements. More Norteños raided the San Saba horse herd, leaving about 20 dead soldiers in their wake on March 30, 1759. So after months of effort to put together something, finally, Perea had a force of over 500 men. Some of them were Presidio soldiers, some were militia pulled from the countryside, some were Apaches, and others were Mission Indians. Um, it was a mixed group of, one source says, 139 Spanish soldiers and officers, 241 militiamen, 134 Apache, 30 Tlaxcaltecan Indians, and these are actually uh, natives from more the interior of Mexico, and 90 Mission Indians, and two priests, of course, went along. And together with an assemblage of around 1,600 horses, mules, and cattle, Perea embarked on this retaliatory mission after being delayed until August. Oh, they also had two cannons. Let's not forget about that, because we'll talk about that in a minute. And the problem remained, though, that they didn't really know where they were going. So he headed northeast from San Saba. And on October 2nd, 1759, Perea attacked a Tonkawa village north of the Brazos. Some say it might even have been like in, around the town of Graham killing several and taking 149 captives. Now, these captives knew where the Tavoya's village was on the Red River, and Perea used them as guides. Following the directions of the Tonkawa captives, his 500 men and plus 149 captives set out towards what is today modern-day Spanish fort, and he was not prepared to find what he discovered there when he got there. It's about one o'clock on the day of October 7th, 1759, when he and his force are moving through what is now present-day Monte County in the Red River Valley. It's a beautiful countryside, by the way, if you ever get a chance to visit, but I digress. And then there was a force of about 60 or 70 warriors came out of some trees and attacked Perea. Perea drew his soldiers up in line and rebuffed the attack and thought he was so successful that, of course, they're going to pursue and follow the 70 or 60 warriors as they retreated into the trees. A tactic that has been used very often over the years, and I'm sure you've heard of other places this has been used. Um, I'm thinking of the Fetterman Massacre off the top of my head right now, where an attack and retreat was used to pull a force in to annihilate them. And so as Perea and his men went through the trees, they came upon the Red River, and on its banks they beheld the Talvoyas villages, one, like I said, that would someday be called San Teodoro, and across the river was the large sister village, San Bernardo. Perea himself described the setting in the following words. At a distance of a short musket shot were clearly seen the high oval-shaped huts, which were surrounded by a fosse. I had to look that up. It means a pit. There's a moat around the villages. 
and the road by which they entered was encircled in the same manner, since it was winding with the entrance by the river, which flowed by at a depth of about one and a half yards. So what he finds is this very well-defended site. Upstream, there were fields of corn, pumpkins, beans, watermelons. But the most startling thing that Perea and his troops saw was part of the village was surrounded by a stockade. It had a palisaded wall. And at the part of that, the center of it, flew a French flag. The inhabitants of the village, when the Spanish arrived from the pieces of the village that were not inside the stockade in the fortification, they had all ran in there. And the warriors that had drawn the Spanish force there were laughing and mocking Perea and his men. And then Perea realized that it was just not going to be a Tavoya village or villages he was attacking. There were Comanches encamped around the village itself with their teepees. So a large force of Norteño warriors guarded a ford just down the river, just downstream to keep Perea from crossing. And throughout the afternoon, reinforcements were arriving at the village. Some expedition members claimed there were at least 6,000 warriors, 500 of them being mounted. Now, it's definitely known from a gentleman by Athenese de Mazeras, who we're learning a lot about in the future. He is very familiar with them, and he definitely stated that the Tavoyas alone were capable of fielding 500 warriors. Perea himself was more conservative in his estimate, stating that the enemy force was probably about equal to his. And out of his party of about 500, Perea had really 300 men to fight with. So Perea ends up getting ready to do battle. He's not deterred by this. He's going to move on and push forward and show these Norteños that you don't mess with Spain and its military. So he set up the Mission Indians and the Tlaxcalans. Sorry, it's a hard word for me to pronounce. On the right... In the center were the bulk of the New Spain military troops and militia. And then the Apaches and some more Spanish soldiers were on the left. Now, what he wanted to do was attack. So, But while he's just trying to get things organized, the Norteños were maintaining a steady fire of musket fire from within and without the fortress. And they kept trying to make sure that he was not going to be able to retreat into the trees while attacking both flanks. There was intense pressure being put on this whole time. Perea's goal was to follow the winding road and basically bust in and take the fort and rout the enemy that way. And he repeatedly and repeatedly attempted to do this only to be forced back by shots from within the stockade and by attacks by the warriors on the outside. They would attack Perea, then run back and exchange their weapon for an already loaded musket at the stockade. Some would. 
the defenders even had fifes and drums playing during the battle. And did I mention that Perea had two cannon? Well, they weren't any help. After firing about 11 volleys, Perea heard laughter from the defenders after each shot. So this whole engagement lasted from beginning to end about four hours. And as night approached, the Nortenos mounted a very forceful attack on the Apache left wing, and this left wing collapsed. And then the soldiers began to flee the field of battle, and then next thing you know, the whole body of Perea's force started back through the woods and returned to where the battle first started. And then they regrouped. The Nortenos did not pursue, which surprises me. Now, Perea considered resuming the battle the next day, but the soldiers would have nothing to do with this. His officers presented a petition requesting a retreat, and the two priests accompanying the party agreed. And so Perea agreed. Meanwhile, after all, they had done what they came to do. We've lost some men, no need in losing others, and... We showed them how superior we are. Now we can go back in victory. This is the way they try to present it to themselves. Meanwhile, back through the woods, down on the villages, the Nortenos were celebrating. So through all this fighting, with constant firing and attacks by the Nortenos, Perea lost somewhere in the area of about anywhere from 14 to 20 dead. And then something like uh, about the same number wounded. One source said 11 Spaniards, one Tuxlacteco, one Apache dead, and then 14 Spaniards, one Apache wounded. Um, There were some desertions also, about nine desertions during the battle. So the numbers on actual dead, I've seen as many as 20 Spaniards or 20 of his force lost in combat. And then, speaking of desertions, the Apaches, apparently, if I'm reading this correctly, from the article from the Southwestern Historical Quarterly that used Spanish documents to as research bases, so the Apache just up and left and took their horses and many of the expedition's horses as well. They, they'd had enough. So for the expedition, you had anywhere from 13 to 20 dead, 15 or so wounded. So they took pride in their previous victory over the Tonquas, where they had killed up towards like 40-something or 50 Tonquas and took 149 captives that they still controlled. But what of the Nortenos' losses? only thing I could find, really, was that between the Tonkawa fight and the fight at the Talvalias villages, the Spanish claimed to have killed over 100. So with that, Perea set back to go to San Saba and arrived there October 25th, 1759. Now that's a long walk. I have family that lives at Spanish Fort, so I know exactly where this is. And recently this year, I drove home from the hill country and passed through the Menard area. And depending on the route you take, it's going to be about 300 miles 
through some pretty rough country. I was glad to be riding on a road because thought of going on foot through all that would have been uh, something else. But they, they persevered and they made it. And so the main reason Perea had been sent on this mission, aside from avenging the attack on the San Saba mission, was to vindicate the Spanish military strength and ability. And despite the low casualties, the mission, most people looking back, it was a failure. Now, many of the troops were very poorly trained, even if they had any training, especially the militiamen. And many were unfamiliar with the weapons they were using. They lost both cannons in the retreat, along with many saddles, muskets, and other pieces of equipment. Had Perea really won the battle in a decisive way, he would have been pretty famous, and more of you would have heard about him and the battle. So he also deserves part of the blame, I feel, and some other people feel, because he criticized the quality of his troops as the reason he didn't do better. But we've got to remember, he was an experienced leader. He'd had military encounters before in Europe and in New Spain, and supposedly was a very effective Indian fighter in his battles with the Apache and the Gila River area. Couldn't he have improved his troops better as they prepared for this battle? in this entire long period of time that it took to gather them up and get prepared to go. But isn't that the way we usually look at it? What did the Europeans do wrong in losing? What did they do wrong so that they lost? Let's consider what the Nortenos did right. They had a very well-prepared and solid fortification. They were very well armed, obviously, to be able to maintain such fire, and they were very disciplined in their fighting methods. Perea was quite kind in his words of describing the Tavoya's leader as he led his attacks and the way he controlled his warriors. He was quite impressed by that. And quite frankly, they drove the mighty Spaniards away. They actually broke the spirit of the expedition so badly that the soldiers might not have even followed orders had Perea decided to attack the next day. And this leads me to a very big question. And if you have an answer to it or have seen someone give an answer, then share it with me through email at texashistorylessons at gmail.com. As numerous as they were, as well-equipped as they were, and you would think as aggrieved at being attacked as they must have been, why didn't the Nortenos follow an attempt to decimate Perea and his force? They knew the landscape and countryside much better than the expedition did. So let me know what you think. As I said, Perea considered the expedition a success, and he went on to have a pretty successful career serving New Spain and dying in 1775. And one of the things the officials of New Spain realized in the aftermath of the San Saba and Perea expeditions is that taking sides with the Apaches wasn't the right policy. And in the future, after taking control of Louisiana from Spain, they would make peace with the Nortenos and pursue an even more aggressive war than with against the Apaches. 
And it also demonstrates that while maps show New Spain controlling a vast territory from Texas northward, in reality, their dominance only reached to San Antonio and the East Texas missions, and then up the Rio Grande into Nuevo Mexico. Everything else remained firmly in Native American hands, and would for decades. Much would not be settled by European Americans until the 1870s. But that's a story for another day, and I've been doing some interesting reading and some really well-thought-out, well-written books that kind of touch upon the same thing I've been trying to get at all along. What's the point in showing a map and telling people this was New Spain when the reality on the ground was much different? Imagine seeing a map of a war, and then you actually talk to the soldiers, and they say, well, yeah, our troops control all this area on the map, but the reality of it is we controlled just this city here and this city there. Doesn't make much sense. It's, it's misleading is my point. Now, the villages on the Red River remained important centers for trade for a long time. But, as happened with most Native peoples, disease had its say and started decimating the Tavoyas. And by the time the 19th century rolled around, the villages for the early 1800s fell into disuse. And it wasn't until the 1850s that Texas settlers moved into the area. And that's when they found the remains of the fortress and the villages. And they found artifacts left behind by Perea's force. And that's where they incorrectly gave it the name Spanish Fort. I've even had people I've talked to that live there still. They still believe there was a Spanish Fort there because that's what they've been told. And Spanish Fort does exist as a community on the far northern edge of Monte County. And as I said, I have family that live there, and when they first moved there sometime in the late 1980s, they found all kinds of cool artifacts, including little beads that ants would bring up while digging their homes. And Spanish Ford ended up being uh, the, is the birthplace of Justin Boots. Mr. Justin, the first guy to ever make the Justin Boot, he lived there during the time of the cattle drives. And while Red River Station to the west was considered more, more prominently used crossing, Spanish Fort also was a crossing for the Chisholm Trail, as was, I think, they might have even crossed a little bit. There's three major bends, Red River Station, the Spanish Fort area, and then there's Illinois Bend on the east side of Monte County up on the river. All of these were important areas. And so, yeah, it was a it was a thriving community for a, a long time. Um, but I digress again. Let's get and do a quick fly through of some other important dates in October. October second, eighteen thirty-five, marks what many consider the beginning of the Texas Revolution, when Mexican soldiers and Texas militiamen clashed at a little place called Gonzales. This is the skirmish where the famous come and take it flag was born. And you can still see it on hats and t-shirts and bumper stickers everywhere. October 28th, 1835 marks the day where another skirmish between Texans and Mexicans at the, the Battle of Concepcion launched the Siege of Bear. And eventually Texans 
set up in a little place remembered to this day as the Alamo, and we know how that progresses. After the siege of the Alamo and the Battle of San Jacinto, on October 22, 1836, Sam Houston, the hero of San Jacinto, was inaugurated as the first president of the Republic of Texas. Definitely check out James L. Haley's amazing biography on Houston if you want to know more about that man. And that republic saw its closing days draw near when on October 13th, 1845, 4,245 voters approved accepting annexation by the United States. 257 voted against. And then in the same day, voters also adopted the proposed state constitution by a vote of 4,174 to 312. And of course, you know what the people were thinking that or most of them were thinking that voted for it. I'm curious about the ones that voted against it. So if you ever come across something or have seen something that talks about that, I'd love to find it and read it. Uh, appreciate that if you could share with me. On October 2nd, 1862, after Texas had seceded from the United States that everybody was so excited about joining in 1845, trials began in Gainesville, Texas, in Cook County, just a county over from where Spanish Fort is located. To the east. Cook Gainesville is east of Spanish Ford. This vigilante court sought to reveal suspected Union sympathizers that they believed were part of a major conspiracy to overthrow the Confederacy in Texas. This ended up deteriorating into what has been passed down as the Great Hanging, in which 40 men were hung and two shot. Over the preceding, after the next few days, and it was it's a very horrible event in Texas history. And let's just put it like this: Jefferson Davis even looked down on the things that happened at this. Now, and finally, if you're a listener to Wise About Texas, and I know many of you are, because come on, he's the best then you're going to be familiar with some of the recent episodes the judge has done on a trial in Jacksboro, Texas, following a raid on a wagon train in which Satanta and Big Tree were tried. Satank would have, but he chose death by, so- by soldier on the way to the trial rather than be tried. Um, well, on October 11th, 1878, Kiowa warrior and leader Satanta killed himself while imprisoned at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, preferring that rather than to remain the rest of his years in uh, prison. Or at least that's the story. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Texas History Lessons. It's a longer one than I've done in quite a while. I want to say thanks to Ron J.K. Brenda, Tim, Josh, Johnny, Rama, and a new supporter on Patreon, Indy Umbra, or I believe Eric is your name. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for helping me out on Patreon. Uh, This generosity that you show me exists me a lot in getting resources, and I'm using it to buy books. 
to do more and be better informed and do a better job. And I have a couple of podcast recommendations too, as I always do. I always recommend Wild West Extravaganza. It's about to come back in full force in January. And I'd like to suggest the History Cafe podcast, as I have before. Go check it out. Very engaging and awesome storytelling going on there with David. And for any Texas music lovers out there like me, be sure to give Chris Rev Waterman's Hymns of the Highway podcast a listen and, and equally encouraging you to check out Aaron Lee Bentley's excellent Off Mic, Off the Record podcast on Texas music. And speaking of Texas music, remember to listen to Texas History Lesson Spotlight artist Mondo Salas. I've been saying for a while he's going to have some new music coming out. Well, it's happening, folks. He's got a song, Old Dogs, which I was fortunate to premiere here. Um, he's got now a full band recording. And by the way, when I say Mondo Salas, you can find his music listed under Rosemont, R-O-S-M-A-N-D, wherever you listen to music. He's got new songs out, though, Living This Way, Old Dogs, and All We Got. All amazing songs. And like I said, he's he's got a band on this recording. Looking forward to when the full album comes out. Just love it. So go listen to it on Spotify. Give him some, some streams there. And since you're already going to go do what I suggest and check out his great songs, do yourself a favor and check out the amazing new songs being released by a couple of his buddies, gentlemen by the name of Seth Jones and the gentleman by the name of Zach Welch. Now, funny thing is, I already loved their music. I was listening to them before I realized that Mondo considered them friends. So I think it's just weird how things work out like that. And, you know, there are so many talented people out there that I'd love to share their music. But I'm happy to just share the, whatever I can, especially these guys, because they are all amazing artists. And each brings a little something different to the table when it comes to style. And of course, I can't end this without reminding you of Texas History Lessons' first spotlight artist, first person that allowed me to share their music on the show, Jared Flushy. Check him out. Check out his new band that he's playing guitar with, Giovanni and the Hired Guns. And for all of these people, give them a listen. Go see them live if you get the chance and buy their merch. That's going to do it, folks. Thanks, everybody. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. If the water in the rivers were to dry, would you take me to where they hide? If the angels hardly made it into heaven, would you sing me a lullaby? To run on the road or come from a kind It's never been nobody and we keep trying to live But all we find is hard times and old dogs
take me to where they lie Beneath the rocks and the cripplers Where the West Texas cries If you love for me runs Then won't you think of us sometimes I've been bearing the miles without giving in For you I'll go Until my Without you, I'm scared of where I'll go. 